Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. Got 12 collective people that, that are making the decision, not just one person. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. When you get that notice in the mail for jury duty, it can be annoying. How are you going to fit it in? But juries are important. They're democracy in action. Twelve men and women who sit and hear an entire case and then ultimately decide a person's fate. And for people serving on a jury, there's no decision more fateful than making a decision whether to sentence a person to life in prison or condemn them to death. For the past year, Life of the Law's reporter Ashley Cleek has been out on the road talking to jurors who sat on capital cases about their trials and their decisions. It's not easy to find jurors. She looked them up on Facebook and sent them messages. She wrote letters and drove through neighborhoods. She called landlines and left voicemails. Guess what? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. No man comes to the Father except by Jesus. Have a great day. Leave a message, and we'll get back with you. Hi, um, my name is Ashley Cleek. Most jurors just didn't want to talk to Ashley Cleek, but then a few did. Here's Ashley. This story begins back in 2008. A violent crime was committed in the small town of Auburn, Alabama. It was in the evening, at the start of spring. Shannon Ray McKenzie was at home with her kids. I remember the night that it occurred, um, I heard all these sirens going by, and it just sounded like awful. It was a cold and wet night. Um, I just, I was like, oh dear, I hope everything's okay. And I really never heard anything, the details, because we didn't receive the paper at the time, and we had quit watching our cable television. The crime didn't involve Shannon. She just heard the sirens and later the details. That night, the night of March 4th, 2008, Lauren Burke, a bubbly 18-year-old in her freshman year at Auburn University, had planned to study with some friends. As Burke was walking to her car, a man named Courtney Lockhart pointed a gun at her and forced her to get in. Lockhart kept the gun pointed at Burke while he drove her car. He forced her to take off her clothes. At some point, Burke jumped out of the car. Lockhart shot her. A couple drove by saw Burke lying naked on the side of the road, and called 911. When the medics arrived, Burke was already dead. Three days later, Lockhart was caught, and the case went to trial more than two years later. That's where Shannon comes back into the story. My name is Shannon Ray McKenzie, and I'm a mother and a wife, and I love the Lord. Shannon was called for jury duty. Lockhart was accused of capital murder, In Alabama, that meant that, if convicted, he could receive the death penalty. I believe one of the questions was, would I be able to ever vote for the death penalty, vote for them to be put to death? Am I against that? And so I had to pause and sit there and think for a few minutes because I never really thought about it. I said, yes, I could. And um, Do you know where that decision came from? Honoring the Lord and what he's called me to do at this moment. I mean, I was chosen for a reason. It's not a coincidence. I don't believe in that. 
I believe the Lord put me there at that specific time to do a duty, and I had to do it, and I had to do it to my best ability. So I took this so seriously. You're holding someone else's life in your hands. Something that you could overlook um, could cause them to, to be put to death or not to be sentenced. In that, So it's, it's very important. After four days of questions, Shannon was picked. She says she immediately felt this huge weight. She told her husband and kids not to talk about the case at all and not to bring any newspapers into the house. I mean, I was very serious and I, I secluded myself away from my family and my friends. I would come home at night when, it, uh, when the trial was going on and I would just stay in the back and stay, go to bed. During the trial, Shannon says she tried not to look out into the courtroom. She didn't want the expressions on the faces of Burke's family members to sway her decision. Instead, she took notes. I took notes about every single thing because I thought it might save him or find him guilty. Over the course of five days, Shannon went through three yellow legal pads. During parts of the testimony, she cried. She said she took a long time deliberating about her final decision. I felt like I was holding the jurors back. I felt like that was very important for my conscience to know that I have made a good decision, one that is right. Eventually, the jury issued a unanimous guilty verdict. Then they had to recommend a sentence. Life without parole or the death penalty. The jury had decided that Lockhart had murdered Burke, that the murder was random and horrible. But Lockhart was also a veteran. He had served in Iraq in 2004, in a region known for being the most dangerous part of the country. Sixty-four members of his brigade had died fighting. Lockhart's troop leader was blown up in front of him. In fact, by 2010, when this trial took place, at least 12 other soldiers from Lockhart's brigade had also been arrested for murder or attempted murder. Lockhart's family said that in the months leading up to the crime, he'd stayed mostly in his room. He'd had nightmares and often hid under his bed. And then we felt compassion about possibly having um, post-traumatic stress disorder. So that that's why no one wanted to sentence him to death. The jury unanimously recommended that Lockhart should be sentenced to life in prison without parole. But that's all it was, a recommendation. In Alabama, the final decision between life and death is left to the judge, not the jury. It's called judicial override, meaning a judge can overrule or override a jury's verdict. A few months after Courtney Lockhart's trial, the judge presiding over the case overruled the jury's verdict. He cited other crimes Lockhart had allegedly committed after the murder that the jury didn't know about. And he sentenced Lockhart to death. Shannon says a friend called her. You know, the judge overruled Hill's decision, and he sentenced to death. And I was like, really? I couldn't believe it, but I didn't know that could happen. But I just have to trust that the Lord has got the judge where he wants him spiritually, and that his decision is uh, the, the Lord's will. The judge said he couldn't speak to me about this case, since it's still in appeals. At first, another juror on the same case also agreed to speak with me. Then she got nervous and changed her mind. But she agreed that I could quote what she said. She said that this case has haunted her for years. 
that she still thinks about the details of the murder constantly. She said that she felt like the judge, quote, knew what he was going to do. I feel that way. When I found out he overturned it, it was kind of like a slap in the face. He knew he was going to overturn that. I was kind of like, what were we there for? Unquote. Three states have judicial override. Alabama, Florida, and Delaware. In Delaware, judges generally use override to switch sentences from death to life without parole. Right now, no one is currently on death row in Delaware because of judicial override. In 1999, Florida passed stricter standards for when override can be used, and no judges have used it there since. But Alabama uses judicial override regularly, on average twice a year. Of the 200 or so people on death row, at least 40 were sentenced to death, not by a jury, but by a judge. In Alabama, the original idea behind override was to rein in racist juries, who would be more inclined to seek the death penalty when the defendant is black. But in fact, judges' overrides seem to fall along racial lines. According to the nonprofit law firm the Equal Justice Initiative, only 6% of murders in Alabama are black defendants killing white victims. But for judges, one-third of the overrides from life to death are in cases where a black person kills a white person. Since 1981, judges in Alabama have overridden at least 101 life verdicts for the death penalty. They've also switched 10 death verdicts to life. And I just want to say, this story isn't about the death penalty. It's about who gets to mete it out as punishment. In Alabama, override means the decision always falls to the judge. And many judges seem to be deeply conflicted about that. Let me think about my intro on that because I don't want to go too far. (laughs) Can I say off the record? Yeah. Off the record. Judge Tommy Nail is the presiding criminal judge in Alabama's most populous county. Nail's been a judge since 1999. He once overrode a jury's verdict, and he believes he made the right decision under the law. This next quote was on the record. Philosophically, I, I, I can see where a judge could correct what he thought was an improper verdict. Uh, because at the sentencing here before the judge, there may be additional evidence offered that the jury never heard. The problem comes in in practical application because of the pressures and the other things that we as human beings have to deal with. Elections. Elections. In Alabama, judges are elected. They run in partisan elections every six years. And judges say that Alabama voters mostly care about crime. Every day, the newspaper in Birmingham runs at least a dozen stories about muggings, murders, and rapes. So when election time rolls around, one of the rallying cries is, tough on crime. And according to the Equal Justice Initiative, in an election year, judges' use of override goes up. Even though philosophically I can agree with the jury override in theory, I would much prefer the jury make that determination, personally. Because you got 12 collective people that, that are making the decision, not just one person. From a personal standpoint, yeah, I'd rather somebody else have to make that call. But unfortunately, the law says I have to do it. 
Judges are, of course, required to take the jury's verdict into consideration. And if they override, they have to state why. Nail's been a judge for three terms, and he's talked about override before. In 2013, he was quoted by Justice Sonia Sotomayor when the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to hear a case regarding override. In her dissent, Sotomayor wrote that override can be explained by the fact that, quote, Alabama judges, who are elected in partisan proceedings, appear to have succumbed to electoral pressures, unquote. I tried to speak to other sitting judges about override, to find someone who believed wholeheartedly that judges should have the final say. But like jurors, a lot of judges didn't want to talk. And everyone I spoke to was conflicted about override, even those who had used it, like Judge Pam Bashab. I did that one time. I overruled a finding of life without parole and imposed a death sentence on a man who went to death row. Bashab's retired now, but she was on the bench for 20 years, as a local judge and then on the Court of Criminal Appeals. I first met Bashab while I was reporting a story about elections. I hadn't asked her about judicial override or even the death penalty, but she just started to talk about override, about a time she'd had to use it. It was very, very hard, and I kept thinking, I don't want this responsibility, I don't want this responsibility. Months after that first meeting, I visited Bashab at her home in North Alabama. She hadn't slept the night before, and she'd pulled boxes and boxes of notes out of storage. Her dining room table was covered with stacks of folders and legal pads. It was the William Earl Gregory case, and in fact, I've got all my original notes here. There's my scratchy notes from this, and you can see that this was uh, 19, it's the, this is the indictment, and my little, where the finding of the jury was, guilty of capital murder, and... Um, According to newspaper clippings, all of southern Alabama was looking for Gregory. He'd beaten his mother-in-law to death with a tire iron and kidnapped his two-year-old son and ex-wife. His ex-wife managed to escape, and Gregory later released his son at a gas station. Eventually, Gregory was arrested and charged with kidnapping and capital murder. Bashab says the local district attorney was a fan of media attention, and the trial was big news. And so there was pressure on me to... I knew that whatever my decision was was going to be a big public thing, whatever I did. And he was pushing for the death penalty. He wanted me to do the override. I don't believe in my heart of hearts that that influenced me, but I could see how it could influence me or anyone else. The jury decided Gregory was guilty. And when it came to sentencing, the jury recommended that Gregory should go to prison for the rest of his life. But because of override... That wasn't the end. I can remember I went into my library. I had a little law library behind my courtroom. And I just sat on the floor. And I just took all the stuff and I went over it again. As judge, Bashab was responsible for weighing the evidence again. Just her. And as judge, she was allowed to consider evidence that the jury didn't hear. So she sat down on the floor of her office and divided all the testimony and evidence into aggravating and mitigating. The crime was heinous and cruel, aggravating. But Gregory was a Vietnam vet with PTSD and had no prior record. Mitigating. This was pre-computers, so Bashab wrote everything out by hand. 
this is my rough draft. So the summary of my findings, it sets out the facts, but this is actually how you do it. I mean, you just sit there and do it. Bashab says she isn't opposed to the death penalty, but as a Catholic, she was wary of imposing it herself. Before she became a judge, she'd actually consulted with her local bishop. The bishop assured her that it was better that she be in that position than anyone else. And then here's my conclusion when I go forward. Bashab reads from her handwritten decision. It is therefore considered and adjudged by the court that William Earl Gregory is guilty and that the defendant should suffer the punishment of death by electrocution. This is back in 1995. Alabama still used the electric chair. And on that date at such time, the designated executioner shall cause a current of electricity sufficient intensity to cause the death to pass through the body of William Earl Gregory until he is dead. And that was on the 12th day of June 1995. Bashab announced her final verdict months after the trial was over. The jury wasn't in the courtroom. She guesses the jurors probably read in the paper that she had decided on the death penalty. Bashab moved on. But every couple weeks, she would drive past Alabama's main death row, a prison called Atmore, and think about William Earl Gregory. Every time I would drive past Atmore, I would know he's over there. You know, he's over there because I had to make that decision. And it's too, it was too much to ask of me that I should do that. And that was my job, but it was too heavy a responsibility. A year later, Bashab was elected to the Court of Criminal Appeals. One day, she was sitting in her office in the state capitol. I can remember when they came and told me that uh, William Earl Gregory had taken his own life on death row. How he did it, I don't know. I can't even remember. But I just sat down and cried my eyes out. Mixed in with her papers, Bashab has a folder of newspaper clippings about the case. Her husband saved them for her during the trial. She finds a picture of Gregory. He was a small man, with thin lips, a grayish beard, and mousy-looking face. She says he was in her courtroom for a week. You know, even if you're going into battle, say you're a general and you've got to go out there and you know you're going to be killing people, you don't know the people, you haven't heard about their whole lives. You don't know everything about that person, like I did. You know, that guy over there on your left flank, his mama died when he was three. It's very personal. It's personal and up close. It is. And you've seen him. He's been sitting there in the courtroom with you. Day after day after day. You know, you've, you know who he is. You know him personally by that time. So I would say I don't regret it, but I resent it. It's not a necessary element of meeting out justice. We have another method. Just let the jury decide. So locker. Wow. So this is from when you were. I don't know. It's been five years since Shannon Ray McKenzie was on the jury that decided Courtney Lockhart was guilty of killing Warren Burke. When she was at trial, her husband also saved newspapers, in case she wanted to read them later. Shannon kept all those newspapers in a manila folder. I just now, this morning, opened it up and looked at it. And I said, why am I keeping this stuff? 
I need to get rid of it. But then I'm afraid if I get rid of it, then I'm going to forget. And I don't really want to forget as much as I want to forget because I don't want her to be forgotten. I don't know. That sounds so weird. Shannon's thoughts about the case swing from deep empathy for Burke's family to questions about Lockhart's sentence. She says every time she drives down the road where Burke was murdered, she and her family pray. You know, her mom and dad and sister, I feel their pain. I know it's not anything near their pain, but I feel pain for them. And when the anniversary is coming up of when it all occurred and... Yeah. Do you know when he's supposed to be executed? Do they have a date? I tell her I don't know, that death penalty appeals take decades. Shannon gives me the folder. She's tired of holding on to it. She says she tries not to drive herself crazy thinking about the trial and the verdict and how in the end, the decision that she and 11 other jurors made to recommend a life sentence still ended in the death penalty. Because in Alabama, the law says that 12 jurors can be overruled by one judge. For Life of the Law, I'm Ashley Cleek. And I'm Nancy Mullane. This episode of Life of the Law was reported by Ashley Cleek and edited by Annie Avilas, with production and sound design by Shawnee Avaram. For help with this episode, we'd like to thank Talitha Bailey, Richard Jaffe, Ed Enoch, Amy Weaver, and Jim Mustian. If you like stories about the law or you've been flummoxed by the legal system, check us out on iTunes. And if you've listened to Life of the Law for a while, write an iTunes review. It helps people find us more easily. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts, from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. Visit Panoply. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the Proteus Fund, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, to make a donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It only takes a minute and we thank you. Next on Life of the Law. Well, they just told me to sign here and here and what I signed. And I guess I signed for my deportation. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.